Why do we need three crosses in the story of our redemption instead of just one? Only Christ's death was atoning. Why three crosses? The text is Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Hope you have a Bible in some form or another. I don't think we have any services in our church where you don't need a Bible. I think that's a good thing. Luke 23, 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, that's Golgotha, that's what that means. There they crucified him. And the criminals, interesting the way Luke makes that distinction. They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That is a strange sentence. Usually we would say if someone doesn't know what they're doing, they don't need forgiveness. It's when they know what they're doing, right? A little baby spits up on you, uh, the baby doesn't need forgiveness. Your neighbor spits on you, and there you've got an issue of forgiveness. Middle of 34, and they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying... He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Get us out of this. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man, he's he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. What an amazing story we have to tell and to study today. Lest we forget, surely we wouldn't forget that it happened, not that kind of forgetting, but not a lapse in memory, but a lapse in a lapse in applying the truth of it. 
Your death means that we are crucified unto the world, Paul says, and the world to us. Forgetting that no sin is small when we look at the agony of the cross and the shed blood of God the Son, the seriousness of our situation. That no life is unreachable. Your grace extends to every heart and life. Lest we forget some of these things, just lead us back to Calvary. And so, do that in the next 45 minutes, I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said... Death by crucifixion, I don't know that you could prove it's necessarily more painful than other ways of dying. The writer of Hebrews talks about believers who were sawn asunder. I'm sorry to tell you that story right before you go out for brunch somewhere. I don't know how you compare degrees of pain and suffering, but there is something... um, specifically agonizing about the kind of Roman execution described in our text that is relevant to this Good Friday teaching. On a cross, the death is different, the execution is different in in this sense that life slips away more gradually and publicly while other people watch and see what happens. So the victim drifts in and out of consciousness in front of, frequently with, other people. So the victim doesn't just die. He or she knows death is coming. There's, there's a time for reflection. Events take place. One of the particularly bitter features of Jesus' death, and of course this is not religious fiction, this is actual history. I think I need to say that. This really happened. And one of the bitter features of his death on the cross is that the people, most of them at least, who who gathered around and watched and were involved, most of them were cruel to Jesus while he suffered. That's almost worse than the suffering. I mean, it's one thing to suffer pain. It's another thing to be mocked, laughed at. While you feel intense agony. No one was sympathetic. As far as we know, nobody supported him. Nobody took his side. Started a lot earlier. One of his disciples betrayed him. Another one denied him. The rest took off. And then his enemies mocked. There's the scene. We would choose to suffer pain, even sickness, away from people. That's me. If I get the flu, if I'm sick, please don't come by the house and see me. I like to go away, lock myself in my room, and not hear from another human being. That's what I like when I'm sick. Away from people. We study the lives of people who suffered and died and were considered heroes in their dying. That wasn't the case with Jesus. Nobody was was with him in his death. Nobody was sympathetic. True, 
He was offering guilty sinners the greatest gift of all, but the prophet Isaiah said he was was despised. Despised. And rejected. Underline that word despised. I don't know if there's anything more base, more depraved than to watch someone die, to know he's leaving this world in deep suffering, and yet to feel nothing but mean and cruel thoughts toward that person as you watch him die. And then to let him know that you despise him while you watch him die. That's different. Gospel record's very clear. Jesus wasn't praised in his death. He wasn't admired in his death. He wasn't even understood in his death. No, he was mocked and he was despised. If you look at Mark, he gives you a slightly different insight into that account of the conversation on those three crosses. In Mark 15, 27 to 32... It's the same account, but with some different details added. And with him, they crucified two robbers. That's Mark 15, 27. One on his right, one on his left. Okay, Luke tells us that. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who had destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come on down from that cross. That's what people said. So also the chief priests, these are the religious leaders, the scribes, mocked him. Mocked him, saying to one another, you know how they do that, you you speak loud enough to the person beside you because your words aren't really directed to the person beside you, they're directed to this person over here. So they're saying it loudly, he saved others, can't save himself, some Christ, eh? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then this sentence, those, plural, that's important, who were crucified with him also reviled him. So that's what the Bible says. There was Jesus suffering and dying. Everybody was slinging insults, including including the two bandits... On either side. Those, look at 32, those who were crucified, those who were crucified with him. That's the two of them also reviled him. So so Matthew, Mark are consistent in their witness that both criminals were mocking Jesus at the beginning. Now one changes his mind as he watches Jesus die on the cross. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But, but as Jesus is about to die, as God's plan reaches its climax, everything begins to sharpen in focus and intensity. Here are some thoughts I want to share with you. Point number one. The darkness and willfulness of human unbelief is exposed. But what Luke hints at, Mark says a little more directly... The mockers told Jesus to come down off the cross and save himself so that they could see and believe who he really was. That's in Mark 15, 32. It says that. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. 
Come on down off the cross. Then we'll believe. So these people, a lot of them, they had seen Jesus raise the dead. They had seen Jesus heal the leper with a touch. They had seen Jesus open the eyes of the blind. They hadn't believed yet. So, so what, what kind of game are they playing here? There's no lack of evidence for the truth of Jesus' claims about himself. Proof was there for everybody to see. They didn't want to see. The problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem was darkness of of heart. The problem was a, a willful rejection of clear truth. The problem was a cherishing of sin and a love of darkness rather than light. They didn't like it when Jesus told them that. Who cares, Pastor Don? Well, the reason is that this is important is we need to know what the reasons for unbelief are. And we need to know that that hasn't changed to this day. The Jewish people hated Jesus, trumped up charges to have him executed because he told them that their religion and their traditions were empty without the goal to which they looked, the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer. We need to know that. We need to know that because then, as now, you, you can tell people almost anything more easily than you can tell them their religion is useless without faith in Christ. Nobody likes to hear that. More than anything, people hate being told that their good deeds, they're going to church, their religious upbringing, it's, it's not good enough. Or... or that Jesus holds exclusive rights to the title of Redeemer and Coming Judge. People hate being told that. They did then, they do now. The Gentiles hated Jesus because the gospel proves that man can never reach God with his own wisdom and his own efforts. That's a hard message, too, for anybody to swallow. It takes humility and it takes repentance to to digest what's going on here on the cross. You have to admit there must be something terribly wrong with me if Jesus had to die on the cross for my sins. Nobody rejects Jesus because he said, love one another as I have loved you. Nobody rejects Jesus because he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But people reject Jesus when he says, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. And the wrath of God abides on you. So now we come to the account of the criminals and their words to Jesus on the cross. Luke is the only witness to record the famous conversation. We should just be eternally grateful for his careful historic diligence in preserving sentences that were spoken in, in just a few seconds and we would have no other way of knowing what was said. Look at Luke 23, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You're going to die. 
and we indeed justly receiving the due reward for our deeds, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remembering me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, you'll be with me. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Point number two. Those who reject Jesus will find no other offer of God's grace. Their wish to be judged by their own sinful lives apart from divine grace will finally be granted. And it's in that passage that I just read to you, the 39th verse. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This man has no regard at all for who Jesus really is or what he's accomplishing on the cross. He's all bound up with himself. Just his own skin. He doesn't care a hoot about being right with God. And, and notice this. I don't know that anybody's ever... I can't remember anybody like really pointing it out to me before. Notice this. This guy speaks and he gets no answer from Jesus. The other one does. Get us out of this, Jesus. Total silence. No response. Jesus, Jesus has grace and pardon for the guilty, but there would be no deliverance for the unbelieving, for the self-centered. Only judgment awaits those who reject God's Son, the chosen Redeemer of mankind. And we all need this reminder from this unrepentant criminal. Luke, Luke must have been stunned as he noted it. It's recorded for our learning because we all have this natural tendency to imagine the love of God just sweeps everyone along into heaven. Love wins. And it's not the case. There comes to an unbelieving heart a, a blindness that just defies all logic. Think about it. This, this man is about to die. He has nothing but judgment awaiting him for his wicked life. The Redeemer who can save his soul is yards away. And he won't repent. Be careful what you do with what you know about Jesus. We're studying Hebrews on Sunday morning and you get these haunting questions, Hebrews 2.2. 2. How, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What, what's your plan? Point number three. One criminal has a, a radical change of heart about Jesus. And only Luke records this dramatic turning point in the conversation on the cross. It's in Luke 23, 39 to 42... One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him. So, so the other criminal senses something in the attitude of criminal number one. That he, he doesn't like what he sees. Rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly. 
receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We'll never know for sure. Remember, it's important. When I read Mark at the beginning, both criminals were mocking Jesus. Remember that? Both of them. Something's happened to one of the criminals. Nobody says how it happened. We have to speculate that. Just, just on the face of it, it appears that, that something in the first criminal's stubborn scorn and unbelief, it, it awakened something in the second criminal's conscience. He, he changes his tune. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes sin looks uglier when we see it in someone else. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe he saw his own heart in a mirror. All we know for sure is something turned his eyes away from himself and pointed his gaze toward God, judgment, redemption... And he says to that first criminal, don't you fear God? Verse 40, it's a good question. Let me ask you. Don't you fear God? He's, he's looking at this hard-hearted criminal. How, how, can, how can you not think about God? Don't you fear God? How can you not think of God? You're on the cross. You're dying soon. He's saying, man, where's your head? How long do you think you have? I mean, there do come those critical times, those critical moments in life when you just, you just have to think about God, don't you? No one can ignore him forever. There's, there's an urgency with what you do with God. Of course, what you and I do with God is always the most urgent thing about us. It's just that most of the time we don't recognize it. There are two factors that these criminals have to come to terms with. It's admitted that they were guilty sinners. The guy says, look, we're just getting what we deserve. They were guilty sinners... And they were dying sinners. That's why they're on the cross. And, and criminal number two finally realizes that only a fool ignores God facing those two realities. I mean, you're at the plate. The count is three and two. The next pitch makes a difference. It affects things. There's people listening to me right now. You never think about God. You don't calculate eternity into your plans. You're all caught up with the present. You ignore the nagging voice of conscience that tells you every day you aren't right with God. That's what it means. That's what it means not to fear God. Or, or you believe there is a God, but he's eventually just going to ignore and overlook unbelief and sin. That too is what it means to not fear God. Don't you fear God? So that's what criminal number two is saying to criminal number one. How, how is it that you can face death and a very risky eternity 
without thinking about your own guilt and sin. Wake up, man. This Jesus offers forgiveness to sinners. But how did criminal number one, the one who came to himself, how did he know? How did he know Jesus offers forgiveness to sinners? What made him so sure Jesus could do something for the guilty? And again, we're just grateful to Luke, the the detective historian, to help fill in that gap. This criminal knew Jesus offered forgiveness to sinners from words that he heard Jesus pray. See it? Forgive them. Forgive them. Now, being gracious to those who wrong us personally, it's, it's a great evangelistic tool. Something in the character of Jesus, something in the ugliness of sin, something in the seriousness of the moment, all these things, all we know is they somehow knit together and they soften and they enlighten this criminal's heart. And God in his grace, he brings those moments to every life. Brings them to your life. All of us have these flashpoints, these moments when, we, when we, we somehow sense that you can't live just on the surface of life. You can't just live life making money, playing video games, watching TV. You can't. You can't just zip through life all on the surface. Moments come where you think, what is is going on here? Where am I going? What is the meaning of my life? Where am I headed? God brings those moments where sometimes only just very briefly we start to of the sinful course of this world. We all have moments when we can't help having our minds even briefly just pulled up above daily routines. We confront our mortality. If you're here and you're 35, you're halfway done your life. Wake up. Hey, isn't that a cherry thought? Three score and seven, right? Do the math. If you're here and you're 35 and life is a drive to Fairview Mall, you're at Highway 7. (laughs) We confront our mortality. We long for meaning. We crave permanence. We are desperate for pardon and peace with God. And just for a moment, we start to... Fear God. Do you not? Don't you fear God? And God starts to wake us up. It's at this point that our text offers such blessed words of hope. Look at point number four the elements of repentance and the gateway to eternal life. Luke 23 40 to 43. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? We just talked about that. Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. 
This man's done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replies, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I've got to wrap this up quick. Here's what we can see for sure. I have four or five quick thoughts. Here's what's happening in that conversation that I just read to you. First, there was an honest acknowledgement of personal guilt and sin. It's in 41. We're just getting what we deserve. That's what the repentant criminal said to the other criminal. Now, you might not be a criminal, but you're a sinner. And nobody ever gets anywhere with God until that is faced squarely and admitted. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So this issue of personal sin, it has to become the central issue needing attention in your life. The criminal had the advantage of knowing his life was coming to an end. I say advantage. It might not be pleasant, but it does at least have one advantage. It makes it easier to focus on what matters. Do you know why people don't fear God? It is usually the moment by moment, one after another, ordinary concerns of life that keep people from fearing God. The doing of homework, the meeting with friends, calling the babysitter, faxing that quote, ironing those shirts, those things can distract us from seeing what genuine life and God and the cross and eternity are all about. Nothing makes it harder to deeply consider God than the ordinariness of most of our daily routines. The nearness of death, though, that has a way of sharpening focus. Secondly, he saw Jesus Christ as the one who could give him eternal life. I don't know. I don't know how he reached all those conclusions. We've speculated a bit. But the text says he knew Jesus was righteous and pure. 41, this man has done nothing wrong. What's he mean by that? Does he really mean nothing, nothing wrong? Sinless wrong? So at the very least, he saw, he saw a purity in Jesus that went beyond anything else that he had seen. He, he saw Love and grace, as Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Whatever it was, he saw Jesus as the only one who could save him right then. The text says he cried out to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's what every person must do who would be right with God. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Third, he publicly took his stand with Jesus. I love this. I started out this message noting that everyone around the cross, including this man, was mocking Jesus. This criminal, this criminal who once joined in with the mockers, he openly switches sides. Conversion. This is wonderful. It's powerful. It, it marks the presence of something inwardly genuine in this repentant thug. He refuses to let the barbs of all the other criminals and all the religious leaders and everyone standing around the cross, he refuses to let the barbs 
of the other criminal and the other mockers go unchallenged. He speaks up. I love it. He stands up for Jesus. He plants the flag. His faith isn't just in his head. He can't do much for Jesus. He doesn't have much time left. But this he can do, and this he will. He speaks up for Christ. That criminal makes me feel ashamed whenever I allow the coolness of the tone of the age or the pressure of the culture around me to somehow dampen my outward zeal for the Lord. Shame on us. Shame on us. For he knows there's another kingdom coming. All the other thief could think of was his own skin. Save yourself and and us. But this criminal knows that Jesus is a king. They're mocking him. King of the Jews, oh sure. Look at 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It takes no great grace just to live for the moment. All of us naturally live for ourselves and for the present. And the Bible teaches us that no one will live this life properly until he sees it as preparatory for another. There's another kingdom. There's another kingdom. It's the long kingdom. This is the short one. This is the shadow. The other is the reality. Five, he won't allow his messed up past to keep him from receiving grace and forgiveness. Think about it. How easy it would have been for him to feel that his life was over and that he hadn't performed very well. And consider this, he had no chance to make good in his earthly future. I talk to people all the time who have disqualified themselves, write themselves off. Would have been very easy for this guy to do that. It's amazing that this thief somehow won't write himself off that easily. There's, there's such a wonderful simplicity in, in what he says. Let me just paraphrase. Jesus, I can't do anything about my life right now. I can't fix a thing. I certainly have nothing to offer in terms of missionary service or tithes or worship leading. I don't have any time to give you. You don't have a reason in the world to care about the likes of me. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. Would you do that? It's one of the great lines in the whole Bible. I've done nothing but louse things up and I can't make one thing right. I can't fix a thing. So, would you remember me? When you come into your kingdom? By the way, it's just a little side note. Did you know, outside of a few angels, this is the only person in the whole New Testament 
calls him Jesus. I'm not saying no one else ever did. I'm saying no one else is never recorded. Not one other human being calls him Jesus. But this guy. His master, rabbi, lord, teacher. Jesus, would you remember me? Bring your messed up life to Jesus. That first thief, he warns me not to let my unbelief become hard and my heart to shut out God's grace. The second thief, he reminds me that my own guilt must never keep me from simply trusting Jesus for pardon. Thank God for the two crosses because I need both those reminders. I need both those reminders. Lastly, and we're almost done. There's never any hesitancy on the part of Jesus to cleanse sinners and take them to paradise. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, truly, I'm not kidding, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm sure glad Aren't you? I'm sure glad that Jesus didn't say, I'm sorry, you don't understand. It's too late. You've messed up your life royally. If only you'd come sooner. You've let things go too far. That just as surely as Jesus had nothing to say to that unrepentant thief. Here, there's not the slightest word of correction told the church here a few weeks ago, I can still remember when, uh, this dates me, but when I went from 25 cents a week to 50 cents a week in allowance. And once it went to 50 cents a week, whenever I went to my dad and asked for 50 cents, I always got the lecture. What, what did you do with the last 50 cents I gave you? So you get 50 cents and thrown in a talk on the meaning of life. And here, no correction. And not the slightest, did you note? Not the slightest pause. Not the slightest moment of hesitation. It's all so glorious, so instant, and really hard to understand. It's just instantly fine today to be with me in paradise. It's the most glorious sentence spoken in the whole world. And that is still what Jesus does. Doesn't look just at the life and the stain. How deep the Father's love for us. Repent. Come to Jesus. There is no one else who can give you peace with God. Let's pray.